Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. Once you accept that power-hungry bad people are disproportionately drawn to power, disproportionately good at getting it, and disproportionately good at holding on to it, and then you think about how do we design a system with that truth in mind, you actually can get better outcomes. I think what happens now is we're on autopilot. There's something happening below the surface that we're not paying attention to. That we're go- That's one of the reasons why we have so much abuse is because we're focusing on a minuscule part of the problem. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. We've heard the statement that power corrupts and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. But is that true? Does power truly corrupt, or does it attract a certain type of person? On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Brian Kloss, the author of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. Dr. Brian Kloss is an associate professor in global politics at University College London and a columnist for The Washington Post. He's a frequent television commentator and political consultant, and he was previously based at the London School of Economics and the University of Oxford. He's an expert on democracy, authoritarianism, U.S. foreign policy, American politics more generally, political violence, and elections. His new book offers a provocative and revelatory look at what power is, who gets it, and what happens when they do, based on over 500 interviews with those who, for a while at least, have had the upper hand. 
this episode is full of super helpful information, and I encourage you, once you're done, to grab a copy of the book Corruptible. It's available on Amazon, Audible. I've got a link to it in the show notes, and I definitely encourage you to pick up a copy. But for now, let's go ahead and get directly into my interview with Brian Kloss. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Brian, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to chat with you. And uh, I was mentioning beforehand, uh, it was actually one of the past guests I had on the show and a a good friend of mine, uh, Joe Tyndall, that uh, sent me your interview on the David Pakman show. And about five minutes into the interview, I pre-ordered the book, which I'm now going through uh, and schedule this interview because I thought it was... uh, you know, reading through everything you're working on, um, the topic you're you're discussing, I think it's just so important, and it's a question uh, that's just raced through my mind. You know, how do bad people end up in these powerful, powerful positions? Uh, I'm kind of curious. What was your uh, starting point of curiosity when it comes to this topic? Because I know you've been working on this for, I believe you said in your book, nearly a decade. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I study for my professional life, uh, dictators and despots. And so one of the things I did when I was getting my PhD and some of my early research was I, I tried to meet with heads of state um, who had done some awful things. And over time, I started to realize that some of the things that I was seeing in these individuals um, also existed in neighborhood associations, in mid-level management, in you know, in this instance, the clergy occasionally. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that I was trying to do is to try to figure out what is this commonality? What's happening here? Is it that, is it that people are just turned bad by power with that saying power corrupts? Is it that power attracts corruptible people? And so I started to dive in and do research and, you know, here we are a couple of years later, 500 interviews later, uh, lots of reading about everything from chimpanzee hierarchies to, evolutionary biology and neuroscience. And and I think all of the things that I thought I knew about power, I've either thought now are wrong or that they're much more complicated than I believed at the beginning. And that's what I hope people will get uh, as they read the book. Yeah, I definitely want to dive into the book, but I got to ask when you're sitting down to meet with the worst of the worst, how do you set up that meeting? Uh, Because I can't imagine you're just saying, hey, you're a pretty bad person. I'd love to interview you. (laughs) You know, it's funny. So uh, there's a few things, and they they actually provide insights that I think might be useful for for listeners. One thing is, for powerful people, ego and narcissism matters enormously. So one of the th- the tips that my PhD advisor gave me way back when I was a grad student was he said, you know, use flattery. So when you talk to somebody who's sort of a small fish in the system, tell them that you've heard that they're really connected in the in the you know organization, the military, the political system, whatever it is. And that you you heard that they could put you in touch with someone higher up. Now it creates cognitive dissonance if they don't help you <laughs> because they they then believe that they're actually not as powerful as you think they are. And so I, I use that method to work my way up the food chain to you know several former presidents and so on, lots of heads of militaries. And when I go into those interviews, one of the things that I think also might be relevant for this audience is I am always trying to explain in. It's very difficult for me to do this, but it's always trying to explain that these people are people, right? In other words, what I mean by that is I'm meeting people who have done horrible things, absolutely atrocious things, but then I have breakfast with them and they crack jokes. They tell me about their families, you know, and and then I ask them about torture they're accused of uh, committing or, you know, using live rounds on protesters, 
Um, and it's this very to be sitting next to someone who has done monstrous acts and then not seeing them up close as a monster. I think that is the really jarring thing that happens. And I, I always try to explain that in a way that doesn't absolve the individual, but just sort of says, look, a lot of very complex things happen in human behavior, and we need to pay attention to that in all of its nuance if we want to actually solve problems. Because I don't think that simple caricatures of individuals disregarding the systems they're in or just saying they're irredeemable monsters actually gets us that far because it doesn't provide us any sort of ins into actually solving problems. Right. Yeah. I love in the book, you, uh, you mentioned that people don't always live up to our caricature of evil, even though they may in fact be monsters in, in real life. And, you know, I, I noticed that often uh, it kind of comes into something that you talk about in the book a lot is, you know, power is very relational. So it's not, you know, someone who has, you know, such an abhorrent personality that they can't have any followers is never going to be able to be a powerful leader. There has to be something, some quality to them that's going to help them rise to the top. And, uh, you know, speaking to rising to the top, you know, you mentioned the idea, you know, power corrupts, uh, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. That's kind of a common, you know, phrase that gets thrown around. But you really make the argument that power doesn't necessarily always corrupt. It it can actually attract. Uh, can you kind of go into what that looks like and kind of what that means as opposed to our, our normal understanding of, of what power does to someone? Sure. So, you know, I think power does corrupt. And I have a, there's a chapter in the book called Power Corrupts, and it talks about the neuroscience evidence, the psychology evidence, et cetera, of what power actually does to your brain, your body, et cetera. But I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. And I think that we make a mistake when we focus exclusively on the individuals who are in power and what's happening to the, the changes within them and not thinking about how they ended up there and who didn't end up in power. So the analogy I, I often use is if you were to attend a high school basketball tryout, you would be very surprised if the people trying out for that team were exactly representative of the heights of people in the school. You're, you're sure. much more likely to get tall kids, right? The same is true for power. There's a certain magnetism that power holds for certain kinds of people. Some of us don't want it at all. We couldn't be bothered. We find it you know, either repulsive or we just don't want to deal with the stress of it. Others of us are you know, irresistibly drawn to it. And so I think the, the, the big point here is that's, that's not particularly surprising, but I think the big point that I, I spend a lot of time on in the book is once you accept that power-hungry bad people, if you will, are disproportionately drawn to power, disproportionately good at getting it, and disproportionately good at holding on to it. And then you think about how do we design a system with that truth in mind, you actually can get better outcomes. I think what happens now is we're on autopilot. We just sort of think a lot about who's currently in positions of power, right? All of our headlines yeah. in the media about politics is what is this senator up to? What is this president up to? We don't ever think about who's not in power and why those certain people ended up there. And, and that's, in a way, one of the major correctives the book is trying to say is that there's something happening below the surface that we're not paying attention to. That we're, we're That's one of the reasons why we have so much abuse is because we're focusing on a minuscule part of the problem. Yeah, it's it's the wrong way to look at reform. It's like, how do we change the abusive person in power as opposed to changing a system that would be appealing to someone like that. And you give a really powerful example uh, in the book and, and in a couple of interviews I've listened to where 
uh, you talk about two different police forces and the type of campaign that they ran. And I believe one was in Georgia, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you had another one in New Zealand. In New Zealand. Yeah. Um, you know, can you kind of explain that example? Because I think it's a really cool way to look at, you know, we talk about policing, you know, and, and uh, that's a common topic floating around, you know, and why do we see bad cops show up in, in different systems. Uh, can you kind of break down those two examples just for my audience? Because I think it's it's a really clear way to understand this concept. Sure. So Doraville, Georgia is a town of about 10,000 people outside of Atlanta. And I stumbled across a video that was on their website several years ago. It's now been taken down. But it was the first thing that you saw when you went to the Doraville Police Department website. And it was a video that starts with the Punisher logo, which is you know a fictional character known for vigilante justice and torture when it comes to criminals. And after the Punisher logo is flashed on screen, a series of cops in military uniforms scream into view in this tank open up a hatch, throw out a hand grenade, and you know they have sort of you know, their guns drawn and everything. And then they sort of scream out of view in the tank with the smoke from their smoke grenades, you know, filling the screen. The Punisher logo comes back. And I thought to myself, you know, if you were a, a sort of normal community, community-oriented person who wanted to join the police force to just help your neighbor, to make this you know, society just a little better, you'd look at that and say, okay, this isn't actually me. I'm not going to apply. Whereas if you were a power-hungry person, a violence-driven person who was really drawn to policing for the gun and the badge and the authority, that is going to draw you in. That video is going to say, sign me up. Now, New Zealand recognized that this is a characteristic of policing, that there's there are plenty of good police officers, but if you are a bully or a bigot or a predator, the idea of being a police officer is probably going to appeal to you. So that's why, for example, there are higher rates of domestic abuse in police departments than there are in the general population. Now, New Zealand took this truth. They said, okay, this is there's something magnetic about power to certain kinds of people, the, one, the ones we don't want in the force. And they designed a, a recruitment scheme using these really funny really high energy, glitzy ads that were all about serving the community while depicting police officers as untraditional cops. So a lot more women, a lot more ethnic minorities, a lot of sort of jokes where they interact with the public in a funny way. And then the big ending of this video is they catch up to the perpetrator who they've been chasing, and it's a dog who's stolen a purse. And on screen, it flashes, do you care enough to be a cop? And I looked at that and I was like, the, the juxtaposition between that and Doraville couldn't be more stark. I mean, it's the funniest, starkest juxtaposition imaginable. And the evidence backs up exactly what you'd expect, which is that in New Zealand, the rates of applications shot through the roof, particularly from women and ethnic minorities who are underrepresented in the police. And as a result, relations improved between the police and the public because the force was more representative of the community it was patrolling. And it had a culture that was recruited on the basis of caring and service rather than the punisher and violence. And the point is not necessarily about the police. I mean, I think there's something to be said about the police reform debate. But I think there's a broader lesson here, which is when you think about why we get certain people in positions of authority, you have to think about the recruitment, and the people who are going to apply no matter what you do. Because power-hungry people will apply to powerful jobs no matter what. It's trying to get the people who don't want power into the roles. That's what's crucial. And I think very, very few of our systems acknowledge that and then design the recruitment strategies accordingly. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that we're making in, in, in modern society. 
how do we course correct that mistake? Is it is it strictly just in, you know, explicitly stating what we're looking to accomplish? Is it, um, you know, a, a situation of what you reward, you you attract more of? Um, you know, how do you course correct that issue of appealing to the wrong people and making, you know, making these positions unfavorable to manipulative or or power hungry people? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, when I was thinking about why I decided to write this book, I mean, part of it is simply that I want people thinking this way, because I think there are so many organizations out there, the ones that we don't always hear about in the headlines. And I imagine that, you know, for your listeners, this is true as well with, with yeah. this subject matter. They're, they're not always on the forefront of people's minds in society. And yet people who are involved in designing these systems could make a massive positive difference if they simply understood what this dynamic was like. Once you understand it, you can counteract it pretty simply. It's not rocket science. So for example, you just think, okay, how am I going to represent the image of what I want this person to be in a position of authority? And then you design the recruitment scheme accordingly. Sometimes it's it's as simple as just reaching out to people and deliberately trying to recruit a demographic that's not drawn to, to this position of authority or the system. For example, there was you know, this is not about power, but it sort of illustrates the point. There was a group of uh, a computer science department, I believe it was in Claremont McKenna University, and they they looked at the fact that their applicants was something like six or seven percent were women, and they, they were just saying this is just terrible, right? We have to, we have to find a way to fix this. So they didn't do anything magical. They didn't have a magic wand or some sort of you know rocket scientist who came in and designed something fresh. They just started to to advertise and reach out to women who may have been interested in computer science, but weren't naturally going to throw their hat in the ring for that for their major and tried to recruit them. And it worked. In the span of a couple of years, nearly half of the department was, was women. And so, you know, my big point that I think the book is trying to say is power is, is often misunderstood. And the first step to fixing it is understanding how it actually works. That means you have to look below the surface at who's not in power as well as who is in power. And then it means that you have to think carefully about every decision that involves power. Now, that's not just about recruitment, right? Because no matter what right. you do, bad apples are going to end up in the system. It also means you have to design a system that counteracts the bad apples, minimizes their damage, isolates them, and exposes them when they do commit abuses. So you know, I think it's a, a full court press, basically, to, to continue the basketball analogy. You can't just do one or the other. If you recruit well, but you don't have any oversight or accountability, you're going to have a problem too. And if you recruit badly, but you do have oversight and accountability, you're just going to constantly have bad candidates that end up you know, maybe behaving slightly better than they would otherwise, but still the problem exists. So you have to do all of the above if you want to solve it. Yeah. I, I'm kind of curious because there, there are people who you know would say, you know, I would never want to hire someone who's power hungry or going to be abusive, especially when you get into things like, you know, sexual abuse or something, no one sits there and says, that's what I'm looking for. You know, I'm going to put that on, put that on paper, but yet people who, you know, are extremely power hungry and are wanting to get into positions of power. Um, you know, I, I spoke with someone uh, who worked with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and, you know, she talked about people going to seminary and becoming you know, pastors or youth pastors with the sole intent of being able to get more access to, to victims. And you look at these things when it does hit the headlines, you know, when something does break and, you know, the scandal comes to the surface, but, you know, how do people get so deeply 
rooted into these organizations when there are well-intentioned people who are trying to hire well, who, who are trying to find the right person, how do they slip past those defenses and, you know, create basically a, an army of loyal followers behind them? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's sort of two things that I'd like to, to speak about. One is that the way that we hire rewards people who are manipulative. So we need to think carefully about that. What I mean is that the standard sort of hiring process in most jobs, you know, there may be some screening or vetting, but there's often a job interview. A job interview is a performance. It's, you know, a 30, 30 minute to an hour long performance in which you're basically trying to make people like you. Now, people who are Machiavellian, people who are narcissistic, people who are psychopaths are very good at those performances. Uh, I mean, we have lots of evidence that the people, the, those three characteristics, they make up something called the dark triad. And the people with the dark triad are very, very good at job interviews. And they might not be very good actually at wielding power because they can't necessarily control those impulses for longer than 30 minutes or an hour. And so, you know, the problems start to show up later on. But yeah. we have to think carefully about how we actually vet people and how we decide who is suitable for a role. I mean, one thing I talk about is if you have a large enough pool of applicants, uh, anonymization is a very good idea. Not having something be, you know, putting it on paper, showing, you know, written work as well as sort of a, a performance in, in person and doing it anonymously. I mean, there's massive biases that exist in hiring for gender and race, but there's also biases that exist for hiring for psychopaths, right? Where we just right. give them the benefit of the doubt. So I think that you have to sort of have a multitude of approaches to ensure that this doesn't happen. And that means smarter recruitment strategies. It means vetting that doesn't end. I think this is very important. Doesn't end when you're hired. Hmm. This is something that, that boggled my mind when I talked to a lot of people in police departments again, but I think the lesson is universal. But I said, oh yeah, we do like a standard background check. And I said, what, what do you do like mid-career? Like nothing. It's like, okay, but what if they decided to, you know, what if the culture around them caused them to become worse? They started embezzling or they started abusing people and you don't have any vetting to check mid-career. I mean, I think when you put people in positions of trust where they're able to abuse others, that's when you have to have the vetting be regular and the screening be regular and the sort of oversight be regular. And I think, you know, those, those lessons, again, it's not rocket science. It's just we have a failure of imagination of how to redesign systems to recognize that this problem is persistent and is not going away. And I think the main reason why I wrote this book was because every time I talked to people and I said, you know, I'm a political scientist, they would say, why is everyone so awful in politics? And then when you talk to people about positions of authority in general, they say, why is it that all the people I know are good? And yet when I think about all these people who are in positions of trust, they end up behaving so badly. And so I think that juxtaposition is calling out for an answer. And the answer, I think, is is redesigning systems to make good people seek power and to make bad people behave better once they obtain it. Is there an example of someone that you've interviewed? Because obviously you've interviewed a lot of people in situations where this isn't done correctly, but have you seen any examples, you know, like you have the example of a good hiring method with the New Zealand police. Have you seen someone you know, properly vet somebody mid-career or, you know, taken steps to make sure that nothing is changing or that, you know, power isn't starting to corrupt somebody. Yeah. I, I, and I'm actually, I'm going to use another police example, although the police is not a huge 
part of the book, but it's, I think this is right. something that, yeah. again, it's very instructive. I, I'm afraid that the <laughs> examples I'm drawing right now are, are related to the police, but I, I think this one comes to mind, which is um, in the New York police department, there was a new system set up where they did sort of random sting operations. What I mean is they would have a cop sent out to basically secure a crime scene. And when they got there, they would be alone and there would be a whole bunch of drugs and money on the table and nobody would have been there previously. And the, the cop was then supposed to, you know, collect the, the, the sort of money and report the drugs and so on. Uh, and then there would be sort of a, a, a process of, you know, logging it, et cetera. What the NYPD started doing was creating fake crime scenes. And they would basically tell cops to go to these places, no, setting them up in a position where they could actually steal the money or do, you know, or in some instances, they would have fake perpetrators and they would shout at the cops to see if they'd throw a punch. And anybody who threw a punch got fired. Anybody who stole the money got fired. And what was interesting about this is because it was so randomized and so irregular, the cops who encountered real crime scenes and real perpetrators started to believe that they were stings. So in other words, they get to a real crime scene where there's money on the table and they think, oh my God, this is a setup. I can't take the money because I'll get caught. <laughs> so they started to have this healthy dose of paranoia um, that they were being watched, which I think for people in positions of power actually is quite important. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I think that that sort of stuff works really well. And I also think there is... Um, there are the, the last third of the book is 10 different principles for how we can sort of clean this up. But that's, that's one of them is these sort of random, uh, over random efforts on oversight that could be used very, very effectively. And you could put this in all sorts of different contexts. The other thing that boggled my mind in this interview, because this the guy I talked to is the former head of internal affairs at the NYPD. And he's like known for this, right? He's like, he pioneered it. And I was just like, how did this not exist previously? I mean, how, how do police departments, how do so many positions of trust just not have anything like this still? Because the NYPD does it, but a lot of other places don't. And, and you're just thinking this is such an obvious thing that you know anybody who could abuse others should probably occasionally fear that they're being set up because it would cause them to behave better. Do you think we as a society have kind of a predisposition to just trust certain positions do you think that's why there's certain, you know, organizations or types of people that have gone for so long without checks and balances? Because I, I think of, you know, obviously politicians have not been trusted historically for mm -hmm. a very long time. Um, you know, we we started a whole country uh, out of that. Um, but you know, when it comes to roles like, you know, the priesthood or the pastorate or to um, you know, someone who might be in a law enforcement position and in, in you know, certain areas. I, I think even that, you know, is obviously changing, but I think there's a lot of people who consider certain roles to be sacred and there's just an inherent trust there. Do you think there's something societally kind of wrong with that, that predisposition toward, you know, just trusting blindly certain positions? Well, I think, I think there's something nice about a society that has high levels of trust, but I think that that mm. only works if you have ways to ensure that the minority who are abusing that trust are actually caught. Because, you know, I, I don't want to live in a dystopian state where we're constantly distrustful of everybody right. in a position right. of authority, right? Yeah. But I do want to ensure that we can trust people knowing that if somebody does abuse that trust, they're actually going to face consequences. Hmm. And I think that's probably the most applicable for, for your podcast is to say, 
you know, we, we, we want to live in a society where we believe that we can turn to religious leaders and they're going to have our backs and they're going to behave appropriately and so on. But you can only have that if you have, you know, exposure of the bad apples and you have recruitment that takes this in mind and you have vetting procedures and oversight and so on that are regular features that make it so we can trust more easily. And I think that's, you know, that's true in, in so many areas of society is that our natural human impulse to trust other people is actually something that I think is one of the best aspects of our species. But I think that it, it only amplifies it. It doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not like it's undercutting it to say, we're going to actually verify. It's just saying, we're going to make sure that the trust is well-suited for this position and well, you know, well-earned. And that's part of the burden of, of being in power is that you are scrutinized. And I think it's rightly so. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I take your point completely that this is more true of uh, pastors than politicians, yeah. but I think that no matter what position it is, uh, there should be some oversight if there's a, a, an ability to uh, hurt people who are below you in the hierarchy, especially who are vulnerable. Right. And, and, you know, it is funny because, you know, just the way you just said that, you know, the, the pastor being more trustworthy than a politician, I think, you know, the, there is some almost religious <laughs> kind of um, religious zealot approach to who we follow politically as well. Um, you know, I was joking with you before we started, you know, I think one of the issues reading a book about, you know, whether you're talking about high control groups from like a Stephen Hassan, or you're reading a, a book from you about corrupting power, I think everybody's, you know, immediate guttural response, if they're not careful, is to go, oh, this is about the other side. This is about, you know, for a Republican reading it, they're going, this is the Democrat, you know, for the Democrats, they're going, oh, this is the Republican party. For someone who's a Christian, they're going, oh, this is in non-Christian circles. And it's a lot more difficult to audit our own, you know, direct surroundings and say, is this true of us? Are we, are we lowering the bar too low for our leadership? Are we not, you know, pursuing that kind of radical transparency that's going to put an end to this sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, this is where I turn a mirror on our own society in a way that might make, you know, a few people uncomfortable, which is, as you said before, because power is relational, it's it's really given, not just taken, right? You can't you can't be a powerful leader unless you have followers. And so I think we need to think about what causes us to be drawn to the worst kind of leaders. And some of those yeah. things are not in our control. I mean, I, I, I talk a lot in the book about uh, this field of research in what's called evolutionary psychology that looks at how uh, the evolution of our brains has caused us to make certain judgment calls that are outdated at best and foolish at worst, <laughs> yeah. um, based on the fact that we used to live a very different way than we live now. And our brains haven't caught up. I mean, we basically have the same brains as we did 200,000 years ago, even though our lifestyle has changed massively. And so has our systems of power and so on. But I also think that, you know, there's, there are also uh, cultural problems about how we think about leadership. I mean, you think about, do we want virtuous leaders? Well, I mean, there's a certain segment of modern society where people who end up deciding, you know, deliberately end up as the bad guy, get a lot of followers. They sort of say, I'm flouting the rules. I'm sticking it to the man. But in a way that's actually not like countercultural, but is instead just awful, right? And those people still have a following that I think says something about us. So we have to think not just about why we have bad people in charge. It's why a certain segment of the population wants those bad people in charge. And 
that to me is a, a much more difficult problem to solve because it's not just a supply problem. It's not like we need to just have better candidates or better yeah. leaders. It's that we need to have some introspection about what causes us to get duped into thinking these are the right candidates for the job and how do we give them our trust so willingly when they clearly are not deserving of it. Right. Yeah. You see this so much and, you know, I, I know I keep drawing applications to, uh, to the church side, but I think for listeners like this was so much of my thought process going through your, going through your book, as I see this frequently happen, um, you know, leadership within the denomination I grew up in constantly would say, you know, things from the pulpit, like I'm going to say something, you're not going to like it. Or, um, you know, other pastors are going to hate me for saying this, but, you know, and spew out this really kind of hateful rhetoric, but it was applauded and amend, you know, from the pew and, you know, the people, it's much like the examples you've given of the worst people being drawn to those positions. I would see people, you know, pursue the role of being a pastor because that's where you could yell from a platform and have authority and wield it. And it, it, it always astounds me that people can sit there in a, in a pew or sit there in any kind of format and follow those people. So religiously, um, you know, whether it's a CEO, whether it's a, you know, whatever that position is like, what is it in us that wants that type of leader that wants the type of leader that's clearly not on paper, uh, a good leader or a kind leader or, you know, ideal leader. Um, it's, it's confusing what in us, you know, is blind to those negative traits. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to evolutionary psychology for a second for this one, because I think there's a few things that happen. One is that in times of crisis, um, we end up trying to gravitate towards, you know, powerful male figures. Um, this is something that exists for a rational reason in the past, which is to say, if you were running out of food and you were a hunter gatherer, and a you know a physically fit male leader comes through and says, "I can you know provide your next meal." There actually was an evolutionary advantage back you know a hundred thousand years ago or fifty thousand years ago to following that person. So that template, a lot of evolutionary psychologists suggest, means that in times of crisis or imagined crisis, you know, if we believe there's a crisis, even if there's not one, whether it's religious, whether it's cultural, whether it's political that those times are when that template within our brains gets most active. And it's when we're most susceptible to being duped by bad leaders. There's also a aspect of our evolution that favors overconfidence. Um, and so, you know, I, I talk about this relative to meerkats and African wild dogs and how humans are slightly different from these other species in the animal kingdom. But there is a lot of evidence that suggests that being willing to follow an overconfident leader has in the past paid some evolutionary dividends, which is to say it's been good for our survival. And that was true when you were going to starve, if you didn't follow someone who say, seemed like they had an answer. So if you're, if you're dying of thirst or hunger and somebody says, I know where there is water, um, following them is probably better than doing nothing. Now, that's not true anymore, right? I mean, we we aren't dying of thirst or hunger. So, and yet we still have these biases in our brains where we end up being seduced by people who provide us certainty and they sell us certainty, particularly, as I say, in moments of crisis. So that one-two punch of presenting the worldview that you have as 
a profound battle between good and evil or some sort of aspect of your way of life being under threat, combined then with a level of overconfidence and vision, I think can be very, very seductive. And I can imagine that that is probably one of the ways that the bad apples within the clergy are able to get people to follow them because the themes in religion are very, you know, they're, they're crises, they're, they're moral crises, they're good versus evil, they're important battles that good people want to fight. And yet it, you know, I think it does end up producing this activation of templates in our brains, our stone age minds, so to speak, that are counterproductive at allowing us to pick effective, decent, good leaders. Yeah, I love what you said about being able to provide certainty or vision. And it's something I've seen where, you know, I think a lot of people excuse some of the negative things they're seeing in the immediate situation that they're in because they've been promised some kind of long term, you know, benefit, you know, some greater good. And this is something. You know, talking with people who are, you know, members of former cults like Sarah Edmondson from Nexium, or talking to, uh, you know, someone who's who's been an experience like that, reading Stephen Hassan's book. Um, you know, you see these situations where completely rational, good, moral people, by every you know, every way you could define it, are staying with these extremely toxic leaders, and all you can do is go, why? But it's because they have, it's not because they're themselves evil people. It's because they have some idealism or some desire for some good thing to happen. And they're, you know, they're sticking with it in the hopes that this path is the one that will certainly lead to that positive outcome. And you see it time and time again. And it's, it's, it's scary because it's easier to say, going back to the character thing, it's easy to say that followers are stupid and easily duped and, you know, uh, morally questionable. Um, it's scarier to think that we ourselves could be, you know, manipulated to following someone who's got some kind of ulterior motive. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think one of the things that I try to make clear in the book is that a lot of these assessments are irrational and superficial. Um, one of the stories mm-hmm. I opened the book with is this story about uh, a study in which children were shown two faces, one face, uh, well, basically they were shown two faces and said, pick who you want to be in charge of your imaginary right. ship in this computer game. Uh, what they didn't know is that one face was the winner of a French election and one face was the runner up of the French election. And the children, the majority of the time, substantial majority of the time, in fact, picked the winner as the, the person to command their ship. And there were similar results when adults you know, re- repeated the same study. And, and to me, there's this aspect of this where you think, okay, that is totally mind blowing. Because how is it that the kids are figuring out who won the election? Actually, it's not what's happening. What's happening is that human beings are making assessments on totally irrational metrics with leaders, like, do they have a kind-looking face? Do they look like a leader to me in sort of my template of what a leader is supposed to look like? And, and I think this is something where you know we, we have evidence for this in, again, with faces. There's a section of the book where I talk about this term, which I, I love that this is the technical term, but it's called baby-faceness. And you can actually measure how baby-faced someone is um, and then do studies on how that affects perception. And one of the things that's really striking is that defendants in criminal trials tend to get reduced sentences if they have high levels of baby-facedness. They're viewed as more innocent. Now, that is totally irrational, and it's completely unrelated to their behavior or their right. character. 
But of course, then that translates into how we assess people in positions of authority. I mean, somebody could look really nice. Um, you know, Ted Bundy, I talk about the, the psychopath uh, aspect of, of, of this book. He was very charming. He looked nice. He lured his victims to their death by being likable. And so, you know, we tend to think, oh, these, these people who are monsters are going to look like monsters. They're going to act like monsters. We're going to have a, a radar that goes off when we're around a monster. And that's, that's not true. So at some point you have to then understand that truth in order to counteract it. And that, that was the, the big takeaway that I hadn't really clocked before I did the research on this was there's so much irrationality baked in this that until we accept that we can't fix it. So, so part of this is just awareness, partly just knowing how our brains are operating when we think about leaders and we think about who we choose to put in positions of authority. Yeah, that's huge. Like just knowing that you're predisposed towards certain things or you're predisposed to miss certain things, like just knowing that gives you a little bit of an advantage because you're, you're now playing at the same level as the person that you're sitting across from. And um, it's, it's funny you mentioned the appearance because that was one of the things during uh, the last or the election cycle before last, everybody was sharing uh, articles. I believe it was from the New York Times, but there were there were several different outlets that put out articles explaining the science of why a lot of people didn't trust Ted Cruz. And it was something with his facial structure that people inherently just didn't trust. And that was that was trending constantly during that cycle. And it was purely not about his positions, not about his political affiliations. It was about just his appearance. And there was articles being written about the science of why people didn't trust Ted Cruz. And it's kind of a disturbing place to be in a, in the political cycle where that's such a big factor um, in whether or not we trust somebody. Um, it's it's kind of scary just how, how much we base on the appearance. Um, and you talk about that in the book. I, I was listening to it um, yesterday and going through... Um, you know, you talking about signals within the wild, you know, and there's, there's some animals that give off a signal that they're extremely venomous when in fact they're harmless. And then there's extremely harmful animals that don't have any sign of being poisonous or toxic or dangerous that end up being, you know, very much. So, um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, signaling and, uh, how that plays out and how, you know, people, pursuing position of power, use signaling to their advantage. Sure. So yeah, this is a, a subset of uh, social science called signaling theory, which is basically saying, how do we convey messages in shortcut form? Um, so, and there's, there's two dimensions to this. There is uh, the honest and the dishonest signal, and then there's the costly or the costless signal. So the honest or the dishonest dimension is, is the signal being sent accurate? So if you're a frog with a red stripe that shows you're poisonous and you're actually poisonous, that's an honest signal. But it's also costless because the frog doesn't have to do anything to have a red stripe on it. It's just there. Okay. Whereas you know, for a peacock, for example, um, its plume is honest. It actually does show its you know, sort of breeding desirability, mating desirability, but it comes at a massive cost because if you have a huge plume, you're more likely to get eaten. So it's it's actually got an evolutionary cost associated with it. So humans have these dimensions too, right? Are we actually, if, if you buy Ray-Ban sunglasses from a knockoff place in New York City, that's a dishonest signal of status, right? It's trying to show that you're rich when you're actually buying a $5 pair of fake sunglasses. So we have all sorts of mechanisms 
that we convey signals to other people. And one of the things that I think where you were totally right when in the lead into this question, where you're talking about how we make assessments on you know people like Ted Cruz or whatever, is you don't have much information. You, when we know somebody well, now it's not always the case because there are occasionally monsters lurking, lurking among us who we do know, but the majority of the time when we're assessing people in positions of authority, we don't have good information. We have little snippets. You know, I mean, in politics, you have a, a campaign ad. I mean, 30 seconds that's been hyper edited and you're supposed to base your judgment of who you want to be in charge of the country on, on that ad, you know I mean? Or their interactions with reporters, which are high, you know, extremely unusual relative to how you would interact with them. So the point here is that people who are abusive, manipulative, et cetera, have figured out how to send dishonest signals. They've figured out that if you're actually a psychopath and you convey that, it's going to be really bad for your life chances because people don't right, want psychopaths right. to do anything. So instead, they develop mechanisms to pretend to be something that they're not. And they're very good at it, right? One of the points also that I think is worth pointing out here, when I talked to psychopath experts and when I was trying to interview um, you know, people who are in this world, the point that everybody made to me was they said, the psychopaths that you hear about are the unsuccessful psychopaths. They're the ones who haven't figured out how to adapt because their levels of psychopathy are so elevated that they can't suppress them when they need to. So that's why they end up in jail. They're the serial killers or whatever. The point they would also make is that the successful psychopaths are the ones that are in positions of power because psychopathy makes you ruthlessly drawn to power very often, but also pretty good at getting it because you're so manipulative and superficially charming and so on. So those people are just really good at signaling. They're, they're very good. And that's why, again, when I talked about before the job interview format and how job interviews are, are perfect for uh, people who are manipulative. I mean, for a psychopath, you just have to be chameleon-like for 45 minutes, send off some dishonest signals, and then you're good to go. So I think the the point is we have to be attuned to this. We have to sort of think about okay, what's easy to fake? What's not easy to fake? You know, how how can we tell that somebody's a good person? Well, is it just the one anecdote we heard about them three years ago from a friend of a friend? That's not very good information, right? So, again, I don't want to have our society be descending into complete distrust, but I do think that we have to be smarter about how we assess people. And the book provides some lessons on how you might differentiate between the stuff to pay attention to and the stuff that you probably don't need to pay attention to. Right. Well, we we won't spoil all of that because I want people to pick up a copy of the book and, and read for themselves because I think there is so much helpful information there. Um, I, I know we're getting near the end of our time and I wanted to ask you a little bit kind of going back to the systems because this is really something that in, in the early days of doing this show, um, I would ask every single guest I had on who was either a survivor of abuse within the movement or someone who had kind of studied it closely, you know, do you believe that this specific denomination can be reformed? I won't ask you this question because I know you said you're not an expert on um, this specific denomination. So uh, it probably wouldn't be a super, super helpful uh, point of discussion, but I am curious when it comes to certain systems, um, at what point do you attempt to reform a system? And at what point do you say this system is in and of itself extremely toxic? Um, and again, I'm not speaking to, you know, I'm not asking to speak to religion at large, but, you know, you look at certain uh, 
you know, cults or, or denominations that are, you know, extremely, uh, there's just extreme patterns of abuse manipulation, you know, um, at what point do you stop trying to do cleanup and say like, okay, there's something foundationally flawed with this specific system? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, there's sort of two ways I'd answer it. The first way is to say, if this, if the system or the organization's central mission is rotten, it's not going to get reformed. Right. So, I mean, the Ku Klux Klan is never going to become a good organization. It's just right. the, yeah. the central mission of the KKK is awful. So it's always going to be awful. It's always going to attract awful people and produce awful results. But I think if you take those out, so if you take the organizations that have a central mission that is awful and you think about ones that are trying or at least purport to try to do good things, but have bad cultures, I think those are reformable. And the reason I say that is because social scientists sometimes make the mistake of thinking of systems as some abstract entity. I mean, people talk about institutions. They talk about norms. I mean, these things are not physical entities. Systems are the product of aggregations of individuals, groups of people. So if you have groups of people who are determined to change a system, well, they can change it. (laughs) Does that mean that it's easy? No. I mean, there are some systems that are so unbelievably ingrained that it's very difficult to actually change it. But theoretically, Every system that has a good mission can turn into a good system with the right level of involvement by good, decent people. But as I say, you know, I don't want to give anyone the impression that this is a you know easy thing to do, especially if the system's rot goes very, very deep, because there are entrenched actors, you know, powerful people who will stop this reform. There are ways of thinking that are very difficult to change sometimes, where it's not about like changing one bylaw and now everything's fixed. It's actually a, a mindset that has to shift. Sometimes they're generational. So there's no silver bullet with any of this, but I am optimistic despite the fact that I have you know, interviewed some of the worst of humanity. I actually believe human nature is fundamentally good. And so I'm, I'm very optimistic about the ability of humans to reform these things. Again, I've, I've talked a little bit about why I wrote the book, but my hope, you know, it's, it's why it's so great to be on this podcast is because my hope in writing this was to say to people, you know, you recognize this pathology in whatever walk of life you're in. I mean, you know, for some people, it's the person who's cruel at the DMV. For some people, it's religion. For some people, it's right. police abuse. The homeowners association you mentioned in the book. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so many conditions. Yeah. Exactly. So people recognize these pathologies. The the point is there's a universal, <laughs> there's a universal pathology, I think, in a lot of these systems that requires a lot of deliberate thinking and action to fix them. And so hoping, and the book came out a week ago, but what I'm hoping will happen is I'll get contacted by people six months, a year, five years into the future and say, I read your book and I started to think more critically about what the low-hanging fruit of how we can fix things are. We started the ball, ball rolling and you know, five years later, here we are, and the system's working really well, and we've got great people in charge, and the levels of abuse have plummeted. I mean, that's that's what I that's what I wanted to you know achieve because I think these problems are solvable, and I, I genuinely I said this before, but I think there's a lack of imagination. I think the people just think this the way this was before is the way it will always be. Now, again, if the if the system itself has had such a rotten history that it's just beyond repair, then perhaps the path of least resistance is to torch the system and start anew. But sure, that's a sure. judgment call that each you know individual organization has to make. 
theoretically, it's possible to fix them. Uh, which one's the easiest option? I leave that up to you. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people um, can fall into the trap of it's like it's better the devil you know kind of thing, where it's like you know this is a system we've always had, so we'll stick with it um, through thick and thin, you know, and try to try to make minor adjustments here and there. But you know, I think people need to, and I think it's why your book is so valuable, you know, and and um, you know, I'm thoroughly enjoying it right now, you know, going, going through it, it is so applicable and there are so many things that stand out, you know, and because you don't specifically, um, you know, I think lean into calling out one specific system, you're giving a myriad of examples across the spectrum. I think it's easy not to, um, for someone not to get turned off and say, you know, oh, this is an attack on one specific thing. Like instead it's looking at, you know, commonalities across the board. And I think that's super important because um, it would be really easy to write a book like this and target a specific example of a specific political campaign or a specific religious organization or a specific, uh, you know, fill in the blank. Um, but I think the fact that it's speaking broadly to commonalities among all these different systems is super, super valuable. And it does. It's where someone like me who, you know, you didn't write the book with me in mind or with my specific system or my topic in mind, but the book's been, every single page has been, uh, or I guess not a page that's audible, but every single uh, <laughs> second of it, um, you know, has been applicable in some way or another. And it's been been very valuable to me. Uh, well, that's, that's, that's music to my ears. I mean, that, that was a deliberate choice, by the way. Right. I, I specifically right. decided not to bring in, you know, I, 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 Donald Trump's name doesn't appear in the book and that's by design because he's such a polarizing figure that I was like, I don't want people to take this as some attack on an individual. I want them to think about systems. I want them to think about right. power. I want them to think about reform. And that's why I picked examples that are often a little bit, you know, I mean, how many people know about the Doraville Police Department or about the way mm -hmm. that chimpanzee hierarchies uh, function or have strong opinions on, you know, these various figures from Thailand's military junta, you know, whatever it is, it was, it was designed to find things that could draw you in without alienating you because yeah. everybody's in a different walk of life and a different perspective. And and I think these lessons are bigger than that. I think they're, you know, they're they're not about scoring points and saying this is a horrible person, that's a good person. It's about saying, you know, even the good people could be better, right? I mean, I think one of the things that that I, I try to highlight in the book as well is that at one point I talk about how we audit and we sort of have commissions for disasters. We never do that for successes. So if if ever there is a religious organization, for example, that has tackled abuse really, really well, or has, you know, very good culture around it, we should have studies that look into them, not just the ones where it's mm -hmm. gone wrong. And like, you know, the investigative journalism so should also be of the places that got it right. Because, mm -hmm. you know, we tend to, it's like the example I use in the book is the challenger disaster. And it's like, nobody studied the, 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 um, the sort of that <laughs> nobody studied NASA until it failed. And then after it failed, it's like, oh, we got this wrong. But there were lots of times where the challenger nearly blew up and they didn't notice because it you know, it's, it didn't blow up. Right. And I think that's the, that's the lesson that we have to heed is that it's important. It's just as important, if not more important to learn from successes as it is from failures and to investigate successes the same way we do failures. Yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, I can definitely attest. I know way more about chimpanzees uh, than I did before I read the, before I read the book. 
You and um, me both. I'd never, I'd never read about this before. I mean, I was, I was deep in the chimpanzee scholarly <laughs> literature, which was not where I expected to be, but it's, uh, it's actually very instructive for understanding some things about us. Yeah. Extremely, extremely helpful as is the rest of the book. And I, I just want to say, thank you so much for, for, I mean, one, dedicating so much of your, your life to researching this topic, um, but also for putting it in a way that's, you know, very readable. It's a, it's a, it's a super smooth read, but extremely informative. And uh, I definitely encourage anybody who's listening to, to check out a copy. It's, it's a really, really good book. Um, and, and really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast. It's, it's funny. It's always funny interviewing um, authors after reading their book, because I feel like you've been talking to me for about five hours um, <laughs> and I finally got to pipe in uh, for the sixth hour. Um, but it's been really awesome getting to kind of talk through some of the things that have been on my mind and getting to hear a little bit more from, from your perspective. So thank you so oh, much. It's for, absolutely for my pleasure. On. It's a, I find, I find that so funny when I, cause I, I have my own podcast too. And so I, I find this probably happens to you as well, but I always find people when they, when they meet me, but they've listened to the podcast, they're like, it's really weird because like you're in my ear when I'm running <laughs> and I'm right. like, Oh, well, okay. Like, I don't know how to react to that. You know what I mean? But, but yeah, that's yeah. the same with audible. Cause I read the, the audio version. So, which by the way, I will say it was a, uh, two grueling days in the studio. The entire thing was over two days. Oh my the voice God. was totally shot by the end. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, no, I, yeah, it is funny. I'm, I met somebody, I've met a couple people now who listen to the show and I met someone at a conference and they started talking to me and just like sharing all this different stuff. And I was like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like you clearly know who I am, but um, it's funny because you build that kind of one-sided relationship, which, which is one of the coolest things I think about the podcast side is you get to get to have that conversation and just really get to know somebody um, which is, which is super cool. But um, again, you know, thank you for coming on um, amazing guest, amazing book. Um, and I'm, I'm wishing you all the success with it uh, that you deserve. It's, it's phenomenal. Oh, that's so so nice of you, Eric. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And best of luck with the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.